Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Have you been grinding it out, paying your dues on the job, sacrificing social and family life, hoping that one day it's all just going to pay off and you'll finally land that top level tentpole gig that you've been dreaming about your whole career? Or maybe you're at the place where you're just starting out and you're wondering how much do you need to sacrifice so you can achieve that lifelong dream of winning major awards and to be honest, if it's even worth it. And most importantly, perhaps you constantly ask yourself, is it even possible to work as a successful creative professional and still enjoy spending time with family and friends, taking time off to enjoy vacations, and having time to pursue other interests and goals in life? Well, I can't think of anybody more qualified to answer these questions than my good friend, mentor, and Hollywood tentpole editor, Alan Bell, who has edited such films as The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2, The Amazing Spider-Man, and 500 Days of Summer, just to name a very select few. In today's conversation, Alan freely shares his habits and routines and the changes that he has made to keep himself healthy and sane during his insanely demanding work schedules. He reveals his honest thoughts on how many hours need to be worked and whether anything can honestly be done to change the demands that are placed upon editors and creative professionals in the entertainment industry. And he also shares some of the perks that come with being at the very top and working on big budget films while also offering some tips that anybody at any level can implement, whether it's for healthier snacking or higher levels of energy and creativity throughout your workday. Now, before we dive in, one very quick caveat. This interview was originally recorded several years ago back in the Fitness and Post days. So you might hear some references to that program along with some talk about working in offices. Yeah, remember that? 
So clearly this was recorded pre-pandemic. However, the topics of discussion, I believe, are still very relevant issues that we all confront today. So for those that may have missed this interview the first time it came out, I hope that it provides as much value to you today as it did for those when it was first released. All right, without further ado, my conversation with editor Alan Bell. So I'm here today with Alan Bell, who is currently the editor of the Mockingjay series, was also the editor of Catching Fire, is the editor of one of the best films of all time called 500 Days of Summer, and has also done numerous other feature films. Hello, Mr. Alan Bell. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I have a little bit of a cold, but I'm in high spirits. Well, that's good. Well, we, we can certainly talk about the cold today because our, our topic today is just going to kind of be a, a general discussion about health and the, the state of our industry. I don't know exactly when the show is going to post yet, but I know that as we're talking live, this is the middle of NAB, and I'm fairly certain that you and I are the only two editors on the planet that are not at NAB taking selfies of themselves eating dinner and drinking. Yeah, Definitely, I'm not there. And yeah. if I was, I wouldn't be taking selfies or drinking very much. But thanks to Facebook, I kind of feel like I am there. So thank you, yeah. everybody. Well, you know, it's funny because NAB, you pretty much learn everything you need to know in the first two days just by reading press releases. And the rest of it is sort of like, well, you can run around the booths and you can go party and have fun. But ultimately, it's really just a big party because, you know, 80% of the products don't even come out until the end of the year. Yeah. And the, and the ones that do are kind of ones where you want to press a button a few times, say, oh, this is cool. And I want to hold this and then you're done. So yeah, the 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 five or six days or whatever it lasts certainly seems gratuitous, but it's also kind of like a, a paid vacation to say, hey, I'm going to do a work thing, quote unquote, you know? Yeah. No, it's it's pretty fun. I've always really enjoyed going there, but I it's been years since I've been but anyway, the kind of the, the theme of today's conversation is everybody always does this like state of the industry and NAB is kind of the, the new year, so to speak, and all the new products. And what I want to do is just kind of talk generally about the current state of health and wellness in the post-production industry, because I've talked to different editors and, you know, different visual effects people and people inside our industry and outside of our industry. But with you, I have somebody that's literally at the top of the top levels in feature film editing. And I know that there are so many issues that come up with the type of job that you have if you're also trying to stay healthy. So I just want to talk about just kind of your your general schedule, what it's like living a life where you have to travel all over the world to work on these giant tentpole films, some of the obstacles that you come across, maybe some things that you've come by to fix some of these problems, and then just kind of brainstorm together and see if there are things that we can come up with to help people or inspire people to do things based on what you've done or things that I've done and just kind of talk about the general state of where things are now because you've seen this industry progress over the last 20, 25 years where schedules were not the same you know, working in the, the 80s and 90s as they are now, a lot of that driven by technology. So let's just kind of start there. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that thanks to you, Zach, the state of the union as far as health and fitness and post is it's getting better. It's certainly getting better for me. And I think it's getting better for a lot of other people who are starting to take this idea seriously. But it's probably not as far along as it should be. You know, I have an interesting perspective because when I started in the business, I was an athlete and I was a rock climber and I, I trained all the time. And actually post-production was, was kind of in the way of my 
fitness. It was constantly making it difficult for me to train as much as I wanted. I was a competitive rock climber. And so I would, after like nine months on a film, I'd be out of shape. I mean, I was still in shape, but not in competitive climbing shape. And so I would get off of a job and I'd have like three months off and I'd get in better shape. And then I'd be at the top of my game climbing wise, and then I'd get another job and then it would all sort of go away. And I did that for a long time until I decided to take my career seriously because I was sort of one foot in the door, one foot out the door. And basically I didn't, I was always a very active person, but you know, when you start working 12, 14, 16 hours a day, something has to give. And, you know, pretty soon you find yourself in your forties and you've got a family it's a lot harder to be as active and you're certainly not as active when you're sitting in a chair for 12 hours. So I kind of let myself go a little bit, but not, not as much as, uh, as I suppose I could have, but I got, I, at the top of my game, I guess, as a climber, I weighed about 155 and I'm six feet tall. And now last December, December 1st, I weighed 190 and, uh, you know, no real muscle, just kind of just like a little puff ball. So now it's like, what, April 13th. And on December 1st, I decided to get serious about not letting myself go too far. I always have this feeling that like, if you let yourself go too far, it just becomes so much harder to get back into like a, a realistic space and your body, you know, just starts building all these blood vessels to sort of, you know, maintain this heavier physique. And it's just a lot easier if you just kind of don't let yourself get to where you're morbidly obese. So I looked up just on my app. You would talk to me about fitness and post. And I kind of said, you know, even though I was very interested in it, I'm not much of a, I don't really like to compete with other people in the sense of like losing weight and stuff. Even though I was a competitive climber, I just didn't, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to fit my, this kind of workout schedule and eating schedule into my work uh, scenario. So I guess I'm just kind of going into my whole story here. I don't know if this is a kind of, conversation you wanted because it's terrific please continue i'll stop you if i don't want to listen to you anymore (laughs) okay so december 1st i basically i got this app my fitness pal and i decided that i was going to start losing two pounds a week or actually a pound a week but it it ended up being almost two pounds a week so i you know i programmed in my weight and i decided i was going to count calories and i at the same time i bought a stationary bicycle and i put that in my living room And I started getting up every morning at 5.30 in the morning and I would get up out of bed. And this is the mantra that went through my head every time my alarm would go off. I'd say to myself, I'm not going to do this. I absolutely cannot do this. This is the worst thing. I'm not doing this. But as I was saying that, I just got up and did it. So I would like walk into the kitchen, make myself a single espresso, I drink a single espresso, hop on the bike. I may stretch a little bit, but not a whole lot. I'd hop on the bike and I'd pedal for a half hour on like one of the easy settings. And eventually they started getting harder and harder. And then gave myself a bit of a cool down period before I had to take my shower. So I have this joke with myself that like, if you don't give yourself enough time, the shower doesn't take, you kind of get out of the shower and you're still sweating. So I would have my second cup of coffee and then, you know, eat like a banana or a piece of fruit or, or some sort of something that passes for breakfast. I've never been a huge breakfast eater, although that seems to be changing a bit now. And so now here we are, it's uh, April 13th and I weigh 167 pounds. So I've lost 23 pounds 
in uh, four and a half months. And that's that's fantastic progress. I that that's news to me too. That's great. Yeah, no, and I feel really good. The thing of I'm still counting calories. I uh, the thing about counting calories for me is that it's changed my eating habits because when you have a limited number of calories, there's nothing worse than you know having it be four in the afternoon and you're fresh out of calories. So there were many times where I, like if I had yogurt land and, you know, after lunch or something where I would come home and I'd have to get on the bike for 45 minutes to be able to eat any of the food that my wife had prepared. But for the most part, if you eat the right foods, like right now, I still have 400 calories left today because I just, I ate so many vegetables. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like you, you know, you just, if you eat green stuff and you don't cover it with oil and salt, you can eat pretty much as much as you want and your body starts to crave it after a while. Yeah, absolutely. And anybody that listens to the show regularly knows that I'm always an advocate of awareness, but I'm not an advocate of counting calories as a long-term strategy. But the reason that I advocate my fitness pal for people that start a program or start a challenge group is exactly what you're saying, is it makes you think about what you're eating. Because the science is definitive at this point that if you're just going to count calories and do an exact measurement of intake versus outtake, that's not a long-term lifestyle weight strategy. But to build different habits and build awareness like you are, it's obviously a great strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that counting calories isn't enough in and of itself. It's not really, it's not really a road to health all by itself. Like we need to be more active and we basically sit on our butts for 12 to 14 hours a day. And I'm like a, I'm one of these guys who I, I went and got a standing desk and I have to say, I hardly ever use it. I do use it, but I, I just, I find it hard for me to concentrate on the kind of work that I do standing up for some reason. And maybe it's just old habits, but so I don't get a lot of exercise while I'm, while I'm in the cutting room, but I do make sure that I'm active pretty much every day. I mean, I get 30 minutes of of writing, sometimes 45 minutes. I've started lifting weights now because I realize I need to do start to do strength training. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really take that long. And the other thing that's interesting is that as I am getting healthier and stronger, I'm more active on the weekends. I ride my mountain bike a lot more. I've even ridden my mountain bike up over the hill to work on occasion. And I've noticed that I, you know, obviously if you exercise a lot, you get to eat a lot. And I've started to think in terms of food as not just something that is an enjoyable to eat, but it's also, it's nourishment for, you know, for my exercise, for my activities. So it's just an interesting, different kind of mindset because it used to be when I was working hard on a movie for 14 hours a day or a stressful me, even if it weren't long hours, but they were stressful. And particularly when you're on location, one of the only things that you really have, and, and in fact, most people I talk to when, when we talk about locations and places that we're working, we're, we're talking about the food that we're eating. You know, Atlanta is a great place to go work because there's so many wonderful restaurants, but, you know, everything's enormously fattening. And that's what you remember is like, if there were good places to eat, then that was a great location. If there, if there were no places that were good to eat, then it was a really crappy place to have to live and work. But now I look at food as like, not just a comfort thing, not just something that it's like, wow, this is the one time during the day that I really get to have fun. You know, we're going to a great restaurant. I'm eating this fantastic food. 
now it's more like, yeah, I could still have that fantastic food, but if it's not good for me, maybe I won't eat so much of it. And I'm getting my enjoyment from actually feeling good while I'm at work, being more effective when I'm at work, maybe being able to leave work a little earlier because I've I've been more effective at work. And then when I'm with my family, I'm more effective with my family. So I'm able to do things with my kids that were harder for me to do before. Yeah. And and I mean, that's kind of the whole idea behind everything that I've been talking about on the show and on the website for the last years that, you know, when I look at food, I don't just look at it as, oh, well, that's good or that's bad as far as taste or enjoyment. It's whether or not that food is proper fuel. So if I'm in a position where I know I'm going to have a long week, I am really, really fastidious about what I'm going to eat, even that Sunday before, because if I have a really fattening, unhealthy meal on Sunday, that's probably going to affect me through like Wednesday of the next week, as far as my cognitive function, my ability to work quickly. Like you said, you were, you know, able to leave a little bit earlier because you were functioning better. You were working, you know, spending more time with your family. And that's really what this is all about for me is trying to make food more than just an emotional choice, but make it, you know, a scientific choice based on the fuel that your body needs at a given time to be able to perform at an optimal level. And that doesn't mean that I don't eat crap or have really tasty meals that are unhealthy. I'll enjoy myself, I just think to myself first, what kind of fuel do I need given the way the next 24 to 48 hours of my life looks? Not so much, oh, well, this is fattening or it's not fattening. It's like, what do I need to be able to function optimally? And it sounds like that's something that you're kind of hitting on as well. Yeah, I am. I mean, I'm not very scientific about it, but it's interesting because as I, as I'm progressing on this journey, I, I am noticing that the types of things that I'm eating are changing. And a lot of that is based on, you know, what types of things I guess I need. When I first started, I really didn't know what it meant to be full because I thought like eating, being full meant I was stuffed, you know, like my stomach just couldn't hold anymore. That, that was the full feeling. And I remember for the first month I was, I really felt hungry all the time when I really wasn't. I just, you know, my, I was getting used to the idea of my body, you know, utilizing some of its fat stores. But in terms of putting food inside my stomach, I wasn't really used to the idea of having like a manageable meal. So if I ate just a small amount of something, you know, whether it was healthy or not, just not, you know, in most cases I was eating healthy, but I wasn't eating I was nearly as much as I normally would so I was always kind of hungry. Like I would finish lunch and I'd be like, God, I'm still hungry. And as I'm getting further along, I'm starting to realize that like, okay, well, what did I have for breakfast? All I I haven't had any protein. Well, that's a problem. I need, I need to have protein and I shouldn't really eat a bunch of carbohydrates at night. Like I, I used to be a super really into crunchy stuff at, at nighttime. Like that was one of my biggest faults was I would come home at, you know, nine at night and watch some TV show and eat what I call crunchy snacks. And whether it was chips or nuts, I mean, I God, I remember I was eating sometimes like a thousand calories of cashews mm-hmm. at, 
you know, 10 o'clock right before going to bed. And not that cashews are bad for you, but I don't think a thousand calories of cashews is what you want to eat right before yeah. you go to the, bed. There are very know? few things that a thousand calories of anything in one sitting would be good for you. And I dare anybody to eat a thousand calories of green beans, right? Like yeah, you'd I don't say, well, green beans are healthy. Could. Well, there's no way you possibly could because of the amount of fiber, but that that's a, that's a tangent. I mean, like, I don't think you, I don't know how you could eat a thousand calories of green beans. It would be like a giant bucket. Right. Beans, but eating you know? a thousand calories of Doritos is a piece of cake. Yeah, no, it's it's one bag. Yeah, it's a really, really, really easy thing to do. And like you were saying, um, you were, you know, I'm I feel like I'm still hungry and I feel like I'm I'm not full. And basically that's just your brain saying, Hey, I need, you know, I need these chemicals that I'm so used to because we become addicted to the preservatives and the sweeteners and the chemicals and the food. But once you start to realize that it's your brain that's hungry and not your stomach that's hungry, that's when you can start to make those different choices. And that's part of the reason that we have such a gigantic obesity epidemic is that we're overfed and undernourished because yep. we think we're still hungry because we didn't get any real nutrition or any yep. real micronutrients. And we're saying, oh my God, we're hungry, we're hungry, but you just had 1500 calories of junk, but your body is starving. Right, because we're not eating real food. I mean, that's the other thing that I did uh, starting December 1st. And it's interesting because I, I love, I'm a person who absolutely loves Coca-Cola. Like I could drink that stuff all day long. And I used to drink a lot of it. I haven't had a single soda since December 1st. Wow. Well, that's, that's probably a huge contributor to all the weight loss. Cause that's got, it's probably the least healthy thing that you could be putting in your body is Coke. Yeah. And, and I didn't drink a lot before, beforehand. I mean, I had cut down Coke. Like it's, I would maybe have maybe two a week. So there, there was a period of time when I drank it all the time. Mm -hmm. But I realized that like, oh, I can't be drinking. I'll get enormously fat. I got to stop. But I would occasionally have like a diet Coke, which I think is actually worse than sugar Coke. It is. It's actually worse for you. Yeah. Yeah. But I just basically realized, that, you know what? All these beverages, they're just not good for you. If you want to drink something good for you, just drink clear water. Yep. And so I just started drinking water. And the thing that I discovered is that when I felt hungry at night, like when I had that urge, because it's really just about habits, when I have that urge and it's, and I still have, it's not like I'm cured of, you know, of 51 years of eating like a trash can, you know, in four months, I still like at night, I'm in front of the TV sometimes, or my computer and I want to eat something. Instead, I have a glass of water. And it's amazing because once you're, once you, if you fill your stomach up with water, you really don't feel like eating anymore and you go to bed, you're not dehydrated. So that's what I, that's how I kind of get around the eating trash late at night thing. But I think that when you're first starting out, you just have to kind of take it slow and moderate what you eat and kind of save your meals up. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like you can't, you know, I started right before the holidays and it wasn't. I had Christmas dinner, you know, I, I ate thanks, Thanksgiving and gorged myself, but Christmas, I, I, I still had all the same kind of food I would have at Thanksgiving, but I just didn't eat as much of it. Mm -hmm. And I made sure that, you know, I had the day off. So I took a nice long bike ride and I could actually have a second helping of something or have the pie if I wanted to. It's not like I'm going without, you know, I, I still have things that I enjoy and I find that I enjoy them more. That's the, that's the other thing that's really interesting about sort of dieting and exercise is that when you do eat that cupcake that 
you know, you've been holding back from for so long, you really do enjoy it. And you also recognize when it's like, wow, I don't really need that cupcake. In fact, I guess I don't really want it. In the past, I would have eaten it just for because I've had a shitty day and I just want to sort of have some comfort food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's emotional eating. You're just looking for that emotional response saying, I deserve this because I was under a lot of stress today. And it's the cortisol in your system that's telling you that. It's not like your body's saying, oh, I require a cupcake for fuel. Yeah, exactly. My sincerest apologies for the interruption. But if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo Driven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. So, you know, I, uh, I think that people, it's very, very easy to kind of, to not do the things that make us healthy, particularly when you're working really, really hard. And it's, it's all about developing habits. And what happens is we start to develop these habits that are centered around getting the job done and getting to work and making sure we're doing everything we can to make sure that uh, the cut is working or whatever facet of the industry, you know, we're in. But I think that it's people fail to realize how important it is when you're not at work what, like what your quality of life is. And I just noticed that, you know, I'm getting, I'm not old, but I'm certainly not a young man anymore. And I look forward and I go, well, you know, let's say I live to be 80. If I keep eating junk and I just become fatter and fatter, you know, 190 people would say, oh, you don't need to lose weight. Like, why are you on a diet? And I'm like, well, because I feel fat and I don't feel good. And I'm gain, you know, you start to gain, I'm not sure what the statistics are, but it feels to me like when you get 
in your 50s, it's really easy to gain two to five pounds a year. Like it's without even realizing it. Yeah. Unless you actually do things to counteract it. I believe it's like five pounds a year or something. I don't know the exact amount, but it's in that neighborhood. And you know, it's like, look, I, I want to live as long as the next guy, but I want to make sure that even if I were to die tomorrow, I, it's all about quality of life. Like, no, we don't know when we're, our gig is up. And I just want to make sure that I can do the things that I enjoy for as long as possible. Because I'm at the point now where I'm realizing, gee, you know, I'm never going to be a downhill mountain biker. Mm. It's not going to happen because I'm too old. My bones are brittle and I don't like falling off my bike. But I mean, I ride downhill. I ride my mountain bike in, a, in what I'm sure a lot of people would say is, is challenging. But I'm never going to be, you know, a competitive downhill mountain racer on a mountain bike or anything. But I'd like to be able to ride my bike when I'm 65. And the only way that's going to happen is if I'm healthy today, you know? Yep. Um, Well, let's do this. Given what you've kind of been through over the last four or five months, I think it's incredibly impressive for just about anybody But I think given what you go through in your work schedule, because there are a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, I work really, really hard and I've got long hours. And then there's somebody that works extremely hard. And then on top of them is Alan Bell. So anytime that I say to people, oh, yeah, I'm working crazy hours, blah, blah, blah. I think to myself in my head, but I know I'm not working as much as Alan is. So give me a picture of what it's like working on a giant tentpole film as far as hours in the day, days in a row, and just kind of the impossibility of trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And you've found a way to do it just by doing these minimal changes. And then I just want to go into some of the, the things that we run into that are obstacles that other people are facing and just, you know, see, see what ways there are to, to overcome them. Well, I'll use today as an example. And today wasn't necessarily a a rough day by any means, but it was sort of an average day now that I'm not on location. So I, I was in the cutting room by a quarter after 8 a.m., maybe 8.30, just depends on traffic. The director was there at like, I guess, about a quarter to nine. I brought him in, showed him some work that I did yesterday, uh, Friday. He wasn't in the office Friday, so I showed him a few things. We talked about it. Then we, you know, went through the whole movie for like a visual effects pass to talk about some various things that we wanted to change. And then I did some compositing to deal with some stuff, did some editing, went to lunch, had some salmon and French beans and some water for lunch. And then uh, after that, we went to the composer and talked to him about we have a big screening coming up. So we talked about, you know, which cues he was going to try to get demos for, and then came back and did some more editing, worked until about eight o'clock. And I probably would have worked until about 8.30 if I didn't have this interview. So I left at eight because I never know if it's going to take me a half hour, 45 minutes to get home. Got home, put my six-year-old to bed real quick, said goodnight to him. And then now here I am. And so that's sort of an average day. And that's an and that's an average day where you got in the car at seven thirty and got home 
13 to 14 hours later. And that's average. And that's kind of yeah, my average, average day too. Like mine, mine is about an hour later, but I, I get up at the same time. I get up around six or six 30 with my daughter, spend two hours with her, get her dressed, make her breakfast, take her to school, drive in traffic for an hour. And then I do the 12 hour day too. And that's my average. And it sounds like for you, your average day is about the same, but for you, yeah. it, it'll go much further when you get busy. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is when we're shooting those days are completely, it's completely different. So like when I was on location for nine months, I did nine months of six, six and seven day weeks. I think I only had two days off in a row in nine months once. And it was basically because I just, I had to ask for it. I was just so, so hammered. But in that case, I would get up at whatever the call time was because I was cutting on set. So very often I'd be at the set by 6.30 in the morning. And the reason why I had to do that is because as soon as they wrap, if there was a company move or they needed to move my trailer, they would want to pull the electricity. So I would get up at, you know, five in the morning, maybe 4.30 in the morning, drive to some distant location from my apartment in Atlanta and then work until, you know, six or seven o'clock at night at which point they would might pull the electricity. And then I would, if I was lucky, I'd get to go home. If I wasn't lucky, I'd go back to the studio and cut at the studio, just depending, it just depended where I was in terms of how far away I was from the studio and whether or not the footage that I needed to get finished was done, whatever scene I was working on. So there were a lot of days when I was getting up at four in the morning, I wasn't getting home until, you know, 10 at night. And I was doing that six days a week. I mean, not every day was like that. I mean, sometimes my sixth day, you know, was a six hour day, but usually it was, you know, 14 hour days, just weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And then when I had my one day off, I would, I would take my mountain bike and the second AD on, on the hunger games movies with me, he loved to ride mountain bikes. And so do I. So I brought my bike out there and I'd go riding, but I was just so hammered because I never really exercised. So if I had to do that differently, I'd probably bring an exercise bike into the trailer. And instead of, you know, pounding food down at lunchtime and eating all the catering, I would just eat something light and get on the bike for a half hour. So at least I would have some conditioning. But yeah, that's, it could be pretty hairy. I mean, you basically... I'm sure everybody knows this when, you know, as editors, you know, this, if we're talking about anything other than the movie or we're on our phones or we're looking at our computer, that's, you know, reading emails or whatever, we're not really working. And the only way to work the footage is to actually focus on it and work on it. And so, you know, that's kind of what you have to do when you're cutting like these huge accent scenes and complicated sequences and you're getting lots of footage and you need to try to stay up to camera. So you just have to, you know, you do whatever the show needs and somewhere else, you know, somewhere after that, you get some, some life. Sometime, right. Eventually yeah. it yeah. comes years and years and years later. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that, that's the price of success, I guess. Well, let, let, I mean, let's talk about this a little bit. Cause my feeling is that there's just nothing on this planet that is worth putting somebody kind of through that process. And if you walked out of this having a cure for cancer and you saved a hundred million lives, it's like, eh, all right, I guess it was worth it. But this is for movies. And, you know, hopefully a director or producer doesn't hear me saying this someday. You're going to be like, well, we don't want to hire this guy. But there's a part of me that just says, this just is not worth it. 
So is there something that we do about it or we just say this is the price of doing business on a big movie? Well, I don't know. I mean, I have to say I'm probably responsible for the hours I work more than maybe even the director is in some cases. I I love what I do. I also, I tend to do more than I see a lot of other editors doing. So some of the time I spend, maybe other editors aren't doing that. And they're just as successful as I am in many cases. But I'm always one of these guys who just sort of lives in fear that he's not going to, he's never going to get hired again. And so I'm always looking to offer more and I take more on. So I've always had this, uh, this feeling and opinion that if I, I can offer more to the movie and directors and producers and the story that uh, people will appreciate me and my services, because I, I sort of view editing as a service industry. I mean, certainly it's creative uh, and, and technical. So because of all the compositing things that I do, I tend to, and sound work as well, I tend to spend, I try to take my scenes to an, another more finished, higher finished level than maybe I would if I didn't have some of these skills. So an awful lot of my time is spent doing things that maybe I could have other people do. But then, of course, I would have to have a, a larger crew. So, I mean, I guess if I wanted to, I could go home. When I'm on location, I don't really have a home to go to. So I'm, I'm fairly, unless my family's in town, I'm very happy to just work. The main thing, like how to change it, I don't know, because I'm probably more responsible than the average person in terms of taking on more work. I mean, when I was coming up, there were an awful lot of uh, film editors who were coming out of the film world and particularly like picture editors who were like, no, I don't cut sound. I'm a film editor. I'm a picture editor. I don't cut sound. And they would just cut with a dialogue track and then have, oh, that's what the sound effects editors are for. Well, now it's like my first cut. It's, you know, I'm working in five one. It sounds like a real movie. You know, there's, it's, I'm panning things around. I've, you know, I've got all these tracks of effects and music and dialogue, and I'm doing everything I can to make it sound as good as possible. So there's always more work to do. And since it's a competitive industry and there's always somebody else waiting in the wings who's willing to work just as hard, we're definitely not saving lives, but we are in an industry that the people who aren't in it value it a great deal. It means a lot to them what we do. And people get very excited about going to movies. They still do. So I I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to change it. And I, I don't, I don't really have a lot of animosity because of the hours, because I really feel like I'm the one who's made that choice. It's very rare. Like, you know, I'm often there after the director's left and I'm almost always there before he, he arrives. And I'm usually in the cutting room before a large, most of the people who work for me even come in. And they usually have one person there to turn my system on because they're like, no, we got to make sure someone's here before Alan or he'll just Mm -hmm. flip. But in reality, I don't, they don't have to be there. And I often don't require my assistants to stay until I leave. They're more than welcome to go have lives themselves. And I'm kind of, I really think it's an internal thing. And so I'm responsible for the hours that I'm spending in the cutting room. Obviously, when it's during the director's cut, I suppose, uh, you, you know, you're going to leave, you're not going to leave before them unless it's some sort of special occasion. But in reality, you know, during the first pass of the movie or during production, there's no reason why I couldn't leave whenever I wanted to. It's just how much footage do I have and how happy am I going to be? 
if I didn't go that extra mile, you know, if I didn't turn over that every stone to make sure that that's the best possible performance and the best possible timing and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a, I think it's a personal question. And I think that as you get older, the one thing I do know is that, you know, when I was in my twenties, it was a lot easier to do this sort of thing and to work as hard and as long hours as, as I work now that I'm older, it's, it's much more difficult. Really what happens is that your energy level just tanks, you know, like we're going to finish this call and I'm going to go out and, you know, sit down for a few minutes and then, you know, I might read for a bit and then I'm going to go to bed, you know, cause I'm going to get up at five 30 tomorrow. So, you know, what gives is as you get older, work sort of takes over and then you, you know, your life happens on the weekends or you just have like a one and a half, two hour window every evening that you're semi-conscious and you can kind of interact with your family. So right. it's, it's a lot harder when you're older. And I think I'm still trying to find the balance. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, figure out exactly how much I can and will do from show to show. I'm, I'm certainly getting better at it. This whole fitness thing is part of it because I, I am noticing that I'm much more effective at work. So I'm enjoying my time at work a lot more now and I'm able to remember things better. That's something that I thought that I found to be really interesting is my memory has gotten, has improved over the last four months measurably. And I'm convinced it's just because of the exercise and not eating crap all day. Well, and it's really no different than the analogy of thinking about computer memory. And if you have 150 gigabyte internal hard drive and you have 73 megabytes of space left, your computer's not going to work. It's going to choke and you're going to type in simple things and it's going to hesitate and you're gonna not going to be able to have multiple applications open at once because you have no space left and nothing's functioning. And it's the same thing with your brain. And that's that's kind of what I'm trying to, to show people. And what I've experienced is I've been on the other end of the spectrum. I've been completely useless in front of the computer, barely able to function, not even able to function as a human being and realizing that if I just made simple dietary changes and lifestyle changes and activity and doing all the things that I talk about on the show and on the website, now it's like I've got a brand new operating system and the amount that I'm able to get done in those same 12 hours or work less than 12 hours because of it is amazing. And I think the other thing that you really hit on that's kind of like my big why is you're saying, well, once you get older, it gets even harder. And I'm trying to prevent that as much as possible and convince people my age and younger that the tidal wave is coming. And you can either prepare for the tidal wave or you can just let it hit you and totally knock you over. Because I don't want to be in the position in 15 or 20 years where I can barely make it through the day because I've gained another 50 pounds and I just, I'm not in any form of condition to be able to do this job. Because, I mean, this is a mental marathon every single day and we make thousands and thousands of decisions and those decisions require actual measurable energy to execute them. And if you don't take care of yourself and don't take care of your hardware and your software, you don't have the memory left in your system to execute those things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. 
The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. And I, you know, I think in terms of, I guess really the answer is it's an individual answer in terms of, you know, your lifestyle and your life choices. The business doesn't really need changing as much as we need to decide to change ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when you first start out, like you'll do anything, you'll work your butt off. It's like, and you'll even work for people who maybe aren't nice because you just want the credits. And you learn very quickly that if you, if you take that job for the jerk, when the nice person calls, you won't be available. And if, you know, you know that your reputation's on the line, if you quit even on the job with the jerk, because they'll bat, they'll trash talk you, or you know, even if they do, it may or may not matter. But you'll think that it matters. So you know, you're not available for the nice people. So as you as you start to mature and you make better choices, you know, you start to work for people who care about you, who understand that oh, you need to go to the doctor. So you go to the doctor. You know, you you want to have decent food around the cutting room, support your you know, your lifestyle changes and will also respect you that if you, you know, you've gotten to a certain point in the day and, and it's six o'clock and you're like, you know what, I'm tired. I've been here since five, you know, since eight, whatever, whatever time you came in, I'm going to go home and you've got the work done. It's the nice people, the people who have lives of their own. I mean, directors happen to be in situations where, you know, they can kind of make their own time somewhat and, and the reasonable ones tend to have lives. And most of them will, you know, I, I believe that if I wanted to leave work every day at six o'clock, I probably could as long as I got my work done. And I'm certainly in a position now where not every day is a killer you know, has to be a killer 12 to 14 hour day just because of where the movie's at right now. We've got it into a shape and it's not like we have to bang our heads against the wall because it's firing on all its cylinders. So, you know, not every movie's like that, but I think that if you, if people make the choice to eat right, to exercise and to be present when they're not at work as much as they are when they're at work, then you can have balance in this industry. There's no doubt about it. It's just, there are going to, you know, the hours are long. I mean, even if we're working 10 hour days, if that was the average, there's still long hours compared to everybody else in the world. But, you know, that this is kind of what it is, you know, it's, 
it's the film business. And well, it's like, I, I always think of a movie as like a, like a military endeavor. It's like, you know, you, you build this whole crew up and everybody like goes in, the mission is the film and we all work our butts off. And then, you know, we're off on vacation afterwards. Right. It's, it's really, what do you do on that vacation? Are you healthy enough to enjoy it when you're done, you know, or are you just freaked out about the next job? I mean, I think another part about this whole fitness and post is making sure that people make the financial choices that they can so that they don't have to take the very next job because that has consequences on your health as well. Like if, there, if you don't have downtime and you're tired, I mean, I've been turning down meetings with people right now just because I, I can't imagine leaving this movie in September after working, you know, two and a half years straight, three years straight and going right on to another huge movie. Like I need to rest a bit. Like I don't want to take a film that starts up the day this one ends. I, I need to have a couple months. So I'm sort of looking at, I don't want to take anything huge. I'm certainly not going to take any meetings right now for other large movies until I'm in a position where, you know, I feel rested and I'm going to be able to feel good about the time I have with my family, do the things that I enjoy physically and be mentally prepared for the next film. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And, you know, what, what I'm trying to to help people understand is that it's not just about, mm -hmm. oh, I'll, I'll be healthy when I'm on hiatus because that hiatus may never come if you don't position yourself in a place where it will be there. Um, but I think that really to kind of go back to what I'd asked you earlier, where I'd said, well, what can we do about it? You know, we have these long hours. We have, you know, the whole Sarah Jones incident. Everybody's talking about working conditions. And I think the answer is that we aren't going to be able to do anything about it because that's the way the film business is. And you can't just sit there and say, oh, this has to change. This has to change, right? There's a part of me that, you know, wants to say, oh, well, this should be a 40-hour job just like everywhere else. But there is something special about working on films and working on television and, you know, like entertainment is something that is absolutely necessary, especially in greater times of need, whether it's wartime or, you know, you look at like after 9-11. So there is actual great value to what we do in the entertainment industry. And really what this program is all about, like you said is finding ways to adapt to it because it's not just going to change. We're not going to walk into a room and say, that's it. I'm working 40 hours a week and I'm not doing an hour more because guess what? They're going to hire somebody else that's younger, that's, you know, has more energy and is willing to work 90 hours a week to take your place. So if you're going to take a job like you have, it's just a matter of accepting that's a situation, but finding ways to adapt to that situation where you can be healthy while doing it. And one of the, the biggest buzzwords that you said in there that I wanted to jump all over was saying, if I decide that I want to eat healthier, I need healthy foods around me. Because that's one of the worst things about this industry that drives me crazy is the food that they make available to people. Like I literally just today started a new pilot that I'm going to be on while I'm on hiatus from Empire. And the catering situation is horrible. I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in Sunset Gower Studios and these really old like bungalow type buildings. We don't even have plumbing anywhere except in the bathroom. So I don't even have a sink to be able to rinse stuff out in. And I have to devise strategies to take a little kit downstairs to the bathroom and wash out my dishes because I still want to make my own food because they had just horrible stuff in the refrigerator and, you know, sitting on top of the microwave in the fridge. Like there was a box of Captain Crunch. And it's like, <laughs> how, how do you make television when this is what you're eating. And that's fine. What I want to make clear is I'm not trying to tell them, take the bad stuff away. 
If other people want to make that choice, that's totally fine. They want to have Coke and Diet Coke all day long. That's their own choice in their own life. But I also need to have choices to make sure that I can function optimally and I have the fuel that I need. And that's like saying to them, I want to have, you know, a horse's head sitting in the catering room. They look at you like you've got four eyeballs. It's like, but really like, this is going to make everybody better at what they do. And once they actually implement it, they notice a difference. But I go through this every single time I'm at a new job. And I'm sure this is something you must go through as well. Well, not really. Um, only because I just, whatever I want, I get, I just like, Hey, we need to have bananas and apples and I want, you know, carrots and vegetables and whatever I, on features, particularly the, the kinds of movies that I've been doing recently, like the craft services, you can get whatever you want. Now there is a ton of crap. Like most of this stuff is junk and it's stuff that I would love to eat. I mean, it's, it's all crispy snacks but there's always healthy stuff there. And so for me, it's just a matter of like letting the PA know. It's like, hey, I really like these apples. You know, I eat a banana every day. So make sure there's always bananas here, please. And it's pretty, you know, it's that simple. I happen to love those uh, kind bars, the little 150 calorie, like Mm -hmm. oat and honey grain things. Yeah, I like those too. So I'll often have one of those and a banana and that'll be my breakfast. You know, I I think it's a little different on a pilot because there are, you know, the budgets are quite a bit smaller and they're just like wham, bam, get in there, get out. It's young people and they're like, they probably have a really small craft service budget. I certainly, we had, I've had that on other movies in the past, certainly didn't have a great craft service budget on uh, 500 Days of Summer. In fact, there was really nothing. Like we just had to provide our own craft services in post-production. So that was like, do you want to eat something? Go buy it. For the most part, it's really just for me, it's about not grabbing that bag of Cheez-Its. Oh, and I love Cheez-Its. They're oh, so it, good. They're, oh, my they're favorite. so good. Nothing better than a big Cheez-It. Oh man, I just love those. But it's been a long time since I've had any of those. Yeah, no, I'm I'm right up there with you with all the the cheesy, crunchy crackers and <laughs> snacks and the goldfish and yeah, yep. there's there's just so many of them and they're so good. I know, you know, the, I, because I love crispy snacks. The one thing that I do eat occasionally, and I really like, is I just I think my wife found them. They're these rice puff cylinders, and each cylinder they have like, they're sprayed with like just a little hint of honey on the outside. And they're almost like, you know, like those little cakes, those like little rice cakes that mm-hmm. people eat all the time. Yep. That just, they feel like cardboard and taste like cardboard. Yep. Well, imagine, imagine something that's about as, as big around as like a toilet bowl, a toilet paper roll, you know? I was going to say a toilet bowl. That's a, toilet a, bowl, a, toilet that's a pretty roll, big sorry. snack. And, and it's, you know, about as long as a cigar, but it's, it's like sugar smacks, but it's, there's no sugar mm-hmm. and they're crunchy with like just the hint of like honey on them. Mm. And each one is 45 calories and it takes you a while to eat one and it's really crunchy. They're really good. I'll send you the link to them. Yeah, um, I'll have to have to take a look. They're fantastic. So we have those in the cutting room sometimes. And when I want a crispy snack and I, you know, I just, I got to eat something crunchy. I'll, I'll eat one of those instead of my cheese. What I did, because I, I have the the same addiction where if I'm in front of the television, either on my own time or I'm watching dailies, I just am kind of in that habitual need to just have 
something in front of me that I reach to and I put it in my mouth and I pop it over and over and over. And it's not about the food. It's not about needing something for my body. It's just, it's the ritual of constantly eating something while I'm watching. And basically when I try to just remove that and use willpower, that doesn't work. So what I did was like you're doing, I just replaced the bad option with a very, very similar, but very healthy option. So like, instead of having a bowl of M&Ms, I just have a bowl of frozen blueberries and it's the exact same ritual, you know, but I'm eating something that's, you know, leaps and bounds healthier, but I'm not just using willpower saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Cause you're going to fail 10 times out of 10. Yeah, so, you are. You know, but if you can replace it with a healthier option, but still maintain the same ritual when you have that need of like, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and watch dailies. Oh, wait, where's my bowl? I need that bowl next to me while I watch dailies. You can still have the bowl there. You just have a healthier option. Yeah, I've been doing a little bit of that, but I've been really trying to train myself away from from that just because a lot of times I come home and I don't have any calories left at all. I'm kind of like, well, I've only got you know, five calories left. And I know that I can eat, you know, I could eat 35, 40 calories worth of carrots and it's not going to kill me. I'm not, it's not going to make me, you know, gain weight, certainly very fast, but, uh, I don't, I'm trying really hard to break that habit. Mm -hmm. And it's not completely broken because there are so many times when I, I come home and I'm just like, I like literally get up to go get that thing. And I find myself pacing and I get a glass of water and I drink a, wa a glass of water instead. And I'm really fighting the urge. And if I have the calories, I will eat something just because I'm like, okay, I have the calories and I've been good. But I'll have to use that blueberry trick. That's a good idea because I've been using baby carrots. Yeah, those are good too. Like I'll, I'll buy baby carrots have become pretty much a staple for me as a snack. And one thing that really, really makes it much better is I'll take an avocado. And this is literally something I did in my office today that I did with nothing but plastic fork, a plastic knife and a plastic bowl. I just brought in an avocado and I just cut it into small pieces, mashed it up with the fork. And I just have this little seasoning packet that I buy with just this organic seasoning with a whole different mix that I put in. It makes the best guacamole I've ever had. You have that with carrots, it will completely fill you up for two or three hours. And there's not one unhealthy ingredient and it's all really good for you. Right. So that's another um, option. But yeah, any kind of low sugar berry that's frozen to me is like, those are the best snacks on the planet. And at this point, if I'm at work and you gave me a bowl of M&Ms or a bowl of blueberries, I would choose the blueberries because they taste just as good to me, but I don't feel horrible for the next three hours afterwards. Yeah, no, you definitely feel better when you eat the fruit. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to let you get some sleep because you have to go ahead and work on a big giant movie in about seven hours from now. Um, but it's been a tremendous pleasure having you on the show. And I'm glad that we could kind of shed some light on just some of the issues that people at the, the top levels are dealing with the same as anybody else in this industry. And the fact that you, even you have found ways to get healthier and lose a significant amount of weight, I think is really encouraging and inspiring to other people that are in this industry saying, well, it just can't be done. I cannot be healthy in post-production. So my feeling is that if you can do it with your schedule, that there's nobody that has any excuse in this industry at any job. Well, I just have to say thank you, Zach, because it's because of you that I really started to think and get off my butt and create a program for myself. And, uh, you know, you proved it to me. So hopefully I'm proving it to some other people and we'll just keep the ball rolling. Well, that's awesome. That, uh, that just made my entire month. You saying that that's, that's pretty cool. 
Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.